0: Listening to the Commons Podcast. For more information on events, serving opportunities, financial giving, and community groups, visit FlagstaffCommons.com. Thank you, Tegan, and welcome, everyone. We're very very glad you chose to be with us today whether you've come a long time or you're just visiting uh, we're always hopeful that you feel very very welcome here um, we at the commons have been around for 11-ish years now if that's right yeah should be our 12th anniversary coming up in october and we have always from day one uh, prayed for other churches in town um, because we love that we are a part of something big and beautiful and diverse that is the global church, and we absolutely joy in praying for our siblings that meet in all sorts of diverse expressions here in Flagstaff and sometimes around the world. Today we're going to pray for a federated community church. They've been in Flagstaff a really long time. It's a very unique community. It's a half-Methodist, half-Presbyterian congregation that's federated a long time ago, and every every new pastor they get, they flip-flop from Methodist to Presbyterian, and they just actually had a, a friend of mine, Jonathan, just left, and he was a Presbyterian, so whoever they get in now, they'll be, they'll be Methodist. So, we're going to pray for them as they look for their next Methodist pastor, and uh, if you're the praying type, join me, and we're going to lift them up. God, thank You for uh, a beautiful... Um, community that we live in. Thanks for the snow that we had and its beauty and the moisture. Um, we're always so grateful to just weekly remember to pray for uh, all of your children and all the diversity around this planet. And we're so thankful for Federated and their commitment to inclusion uh, that they've had for a long time for everyone, uh, They're a church for everyone also. And Lord, I'm thankful for their leadership and And I'm thankful, Lord, for their commitment to social justice. And, Lord, we pray as they're uh, seeking a new minister uh, in the Methodist variety, we're thankful for the great Methodist community here in this church that we share in court, and we just pray that they'll find uh, the right person. And may she or he be the the perfect fit for Federated. And we love them. We also pray today um, that you would open up our hearts and minds for what you might have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I... uh, I loved going to Mexico last week. I am so, so thankful always. I love church community when people just step up. Uh, I knew last week was going to be hard with a lot of us in Mexico and Kylan Greta on tour. I'm so thankful to Carrie Chamberlain for leading the time. Everything that I heard is that it went really, really well. For uh, And I think she led a spiritual practice, and it was kind of a small group thing, which was kind of cool. So I'm so thankful to her. I'm so thankful for Debbie leading music today and uh, just, just grateful for our community. Mexico was an amazing trip, as always. It's always so so refreshing every year uh, to be ministered to by our neighbors in the south. I feel like it's always such a gift to go down to Mexico and be reminded of the strength of community and all the things that they they bless us with when we go down there. It was a really, really fruitful and fun trip and a great connecting trip for all of us that went, which was really, really fun. Um, this week coming back, sorry, I have a little bit of a scratchy voice. I think there's a handful of us that have some sort of weird sinus infection. I'll try to hammer through. Hopefully it won't be too awful for you. Um, but this week I came back and uh, I got to do a little droning, I don't know how many of you are friends with me on social media, but I got some cool droning pictures. I actually have a new drone because I had an old cheap drone that finally crashed in Oak Creek Canyon when we were making that video with uh, Greta's voice over it that we showed not too long ago. Well. I got a new drone this week, and the first time I took it out, there was these. uh, I went out and I was driving around, and I ended up finding these five bull elk that were just beautiful, and got to get all this cool. It was snowing, it was blizzarding that day, and got all these cool drone videos and footage of it. And then, right after that, as part of the course for me, I got my drone stuck in a tree on its first flight out. So, I was able to get the footage wirelessly from the tree of the elk, which was pretty cool, but I didn't know how to get this drone out because it was like 70 feet, 50 to 70 feet up this ponderosa pine tree just out in the national forests. So um, I, I did what I always do, and I called in my big brother. He helps me figure out all those kinds of things, Trey, who runs the sound back there. And so we, we thought of every single, I mean, we were trying to think of someone else who might have a drone that could maybe we could like hook the drone and get it out of the tree. We thought of fishing um, fishing lines, uh, apple oranges with strings on it to throw up there and we try I tried throwing it's really really hard to throw a ball or something that high and it just gets stuck It was pretty precarious um, Trey who's evil to his core. He wanted to just cut the tree down <laughs> he's, he's shaking his head out there. That's that's not true. It was actually maybe my idea, but we didn't do that But he had another idea. He actually had uh, 22 rifles and we thought maybe we could actually hit the branch if we could get it in the scope and like knock this drone out of a tree, and so he had his 22 rifle. And I'm not a big gun guy. I haven't shot a gun, and I don't know how long the last time I shot a gun. So Trey was kind of leading the way. I was handing him the 22 bullets, and he kind of got the scope sighted out and stuff. And he probably shot, I don't know, Trey 15 times, 16 times, something like that. And I think he felt. And he was. I mean, we couldn't really tell. Literally, it was so high up there. We actually couldn't tell if the bullet was hitting the branch that we were aiming at. We thought it was. We couldn't tell. And he's like, "You just want to take a shot?" Yeah. I was like, "I guess so." So I took it. And I aim up there and poof, one shot. Branch, drone, hero. It feels so good to publicly rub it in my brother's face that he's here. That in one shot I took that thing out. So <clears throat> that's really all I want to talk about today. I wanted you guys to know that I'm an excellent marksman. I should have been a gunman, but I'm not. Um, That's not true, but I did love being in the deep snow. I did love, I know if you've ever been here before, I'm a little obsessed with nature and seasons, and um, anytime we get to experience the pragmatic side of the seasons, a deep, beautiful snow like that, I feel like it really is a, for me, it's a spiritual experience. The beauty of the snow, the connectedness, I think, Most of us as humans have some of that. But what I'm going to talk about today is a little bit of a one-off before we start a whole new series uh, in the Lent season. One of the things that we do at the Commons is we often go through either a book of Scripture, like we went through Galatians just recently, or, or John this past summer, or all sorts of things like that, or topical things. But we also love to follow the church calendar, and that relates to the seasons The reasons I I love moving here 15 years ago from Dallas, uh, many reasons actually, about a billion reasons. I don't think I would ever wanna go back. I love it here so much. But the seasons are probably the most powerful thing, to have beautiful fall colors and a real winter and an actual spring and summer and even a monsoon season. We get five seasons, it's like a bonus season here. And um, the church calendar is like that. It it takes us through the seasons of Advent to prepare ourselves for Christmas. That's actually the beginning of the church year. And then we have the Epiphany season. We're about to enter into the Lent season, which I'm going to talk a little bit about. In fact, it starts this Wednesday. And the reason I love that is I actually think it's, it's earthy. I think it's really, really physical. I think sometimes my physical body needs the seasons. I need the sunshine of summer, and I need the cold coziness of winter and the community of winter and having parties together in the darkness at night. And I think the church seasons offer us a similar earthy physical thing. And I think when I grew up in American evangelicalism, um, what was hard for me sometimes is, again, I had a lot of good in that, and I felt like I met Christ and a lot of connection and wonderful people through that. But sometimes I lost something deep about the essence of who God is, and that I sometimes started to believe that God was completely transactional. And, and what I mean by that is I somehow got the message that the way God is is basically we're all, we're all wrong with God somehow, And there has to be all these transactions that take place with Jesus dying on the cross the right way, and if I ask Jesus in my heart the right way, then this transaction take place, then God can forgive me. And then then ultimately I'm pretty good, right? It's kind of like, I said the sinner's prayer, so now I'm going to go to heaven forever, so it's kind of like, I'm just going to cruise the next 70 years or so and just do whatever we want. That's not a very inspiring, electrifying, energy-giving faith. And and, and it's also a really boring God, a transactional God, whereas my experience of the divine since I was a small child and also in the other human beings who I know and love is so much bigger and brighter and better than that. It's so much more relational and it's so much more what? Seasonal there's like a shift in it. It's not always the same. It's more like a relationship with a dearly loved one or something like that. So what we're gonna to do today is I'm just gonna look at a passage that many churches are gonna be reading on Wednesday to set up Ash Wednesday. I think she mentioned, uh, Kelsey mentioned in the announcements that we're gonna invite you all to go to the Episcopal Church for Ash Wednesday. That's one of the things is the commons. The reason we chose the name is we're part of a big diverse church. We really love partnering with other churches and we've partnered with the Episcopal Church and others with our youth group and other like-minded communities that are inclusive to everyone, and they have a beautiful Ash Wednesday service that I'd like you to go to. But I want to talk a little bit about what Ash Wednesday is, what Lent is, and we're just going to read one passage of Scripture that uh, most of uh, a billion people will probably be reading on Wednesday. It's one of the most famous psalms ever written. But what is Ash Wednesday and what is Lent? well the early church um, we don't know a ton for sure it's kind of disappointing if you really are fascinated with the early church sometimes preachers and theologians talk too confidently about what we know there's a lot that we don't know about the first and second centuries we have little glimpses there's just a few authors that their works have survived I'm not talking about the Gospels I'm talking about uh, Clement of Rome or Ignatius or Eusebius from these first four centuries very few authors give us little glimpse of what the early church was like and one of the things that we know is that around the fourth century in the Council of Nicaea? There was already this Christian tradition. Of celebrating this Lenten period. And what this is is a fast or a time of repentance. And the early Christians, what they did is they looked at the seasons of the year and they started to make a new calendar. It was all new to them and their new kind of diverse faith that was led by Middle Eastern women and this kind of completely different thing than what Western Christianity has become. And they started to kind of form cycles and seasons for their spiritual life to shape around the experiences that they had had with God. And one of the things they thought about is that Jesus, as the face of God, when we have this question, what is God like, which is what we're going to talk a lot about in the next seven weeks is you look at the face of Jesus. And one of the things they saw is this famous story of Jesus going out in the wilderness for 40 days, that He did some sort of fast, this religious um, tradition, this practice that somehow connected Jesus to what He would say His Father or the divine in some way. And so they said, well, maybe we should follow that, the teachings of Jesus, and also fast for 40 days. So they thought the time to do that would be in preparation for the centerpiece of the Christian calendar, which is resurrection, which is the most urgent. Earthy seasonal thing. When I think of resurrection, I can I cannot not think of dead trees bursting with little buds in the spring, the resurrection of the seasons. And so for the season of the church, it was let's be like Jesus and let's fast and repent. Now, I don't know about you, but I've actually had tiny bits of, um, I don't think trauma's the right word for me in this case, but frustration over the years with my own religious experience around certain Christianese and Christian languages, and one of those is sin and repentance those are hard for me. After decades of studying theology and things, I think I have ways now when I think about words like sin and repentance that bring me a lot of life and connection to God. I think that they're really beautiful doctrines, but there's a whole lot of baggage for me because in my life growing up in the church, when someone talked about sin or repentance, it was often, often unintentionally, not, not nefarious. Nobody was out there trying to do this, but it kind of created this kind of unspoken culture of basically shame performance, transaction, and instead of a relationship, it was this transactional stuff. It was kind of like some sort of metric or or grading system to see if God loved me enough, if I did enough things, or if I sinned, maybe I wasn't close to God anymore, and if I did something, maybe I could get close to God again. But the good news is that that's never been ancient, authentic, real truth about who God is. From, from long before humans could speak or have language, the universe speaks its own, the first book of God is nature, to, to the tribal people of the ancient Near Eastern world who wrote these Jewish texts, to the Christians who came along and wrote these new texts. People have always understood actually something intuitively about God that's so much better than that, and that's that we're already perfectly loved in God. And this transactional stuff is distracting from the much richer and more transformative thing which is a relational connection to God. So sin and repentance can either be language that's used to harm, shame, and pull us away from God or our best self, or it can be language that we're speaking out of our… It's so funny, language is just like we're making vibrations with our tongue and we just agree that these words mean something. And so a lot of times words have their power in the way that we use them. And for me, something like sin and repentance can be something in a relational context that's actually a seasonal connection that can bring us health and vibrance, and humility, and most importantly, love, the very thing that the Scripture tells us God is. We can be connected to love. So, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read Psalm 51, like most of the church. This is a famous psalm. It's, it's David's most famous psalm, probably. Um, there's actually a, the, the first line in Latin. If you think about the way the church exploded in the Roman world, everything was written in Latin. That's why some of you have to study that in middle school. I'm sure it really changed your life. But the, the very first line of Psalm 51 it says, Miserere me Deus. It's have mercy on me, O God. And there's this, there's this song called Miserere and uh, it was written in 1638, I believe, for the Sistine Chapel of Vatican City. And by the way, what I'm telling you right now is almost worthless information. I'm on a tangent that you can just tune out if you want to. This is only like an interesting fact to me. But in the Sistine Chapel in 1638, they wrote this song called Miserere, and it was so beautiful that the Pope and the entire Catholic Church said, nobody can sing this song anymore because it's too beautiful. It will become an idol. And they only allowed this song, Miserere, to only be sang in the Sistine Chapel once a year by the highest church choir. No one else was ever allowed to hear it. Trey, do you have that pulled up? Can we play it on Spotify? Spotify has this illegal, unholy song. I'll to see if we can play it for you, the greatest song ever written. Turn that up, we're gonna need some, yeah. All right, you can, you can fade it out dramatically. You can fade it out slowly take that Taylor Swift. That is, that is the greatest song ever written in human history. I actually do think it's a very beautiful song, but I think it's so funny that it was actually in the very forbidding of that song that it gained its mystique, right? Which I think we know a little bit about reverse psychology, especially if you're a parent, but if you forbid something, that's the very thing that we're drawn to as human beings. And there's this idea that I want us to focus on today when we think about this, uh, what that word actually means, which is have mercy on me, that is a possible way that we can lean into the church calendar and we can experience together with the global church starting on Wednesday a process where we can have community and try to repent together of sins, these words that have been so harmful, redeem those words in such a way that we are closer to each other, we become more loving, less shame-filled, more forgiven, and more able to become the kind of people that we hope to be in loving. So, what's the story of Psalm 51? Most of you probably could tell this, Um, and I don't know, Trey, if that little first phrase, uh, there's kind of a note actually in the Bible at the beginning of Psalm 51. What do you have up there on the? Do you just have verse 1? Yeah, right above that, it says actually this, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery, with Bathsheba. So, this is a note that's actually in the Hebrew text. Um, this is super nerdy, but the, the ancient Hebrew text was translated into Greek in what's called the Septuagint in Alexandria about 200 years before Christ. And there were all these notes in the Hebrew that rabbis had written into the Psalms, and they're contained in most of our Bibles. But this one's really specific and unique because this is from literally 2,200 years ago. Somebody was saying, hey, I kind of know the story behind this song. And remember, a Psalm is just a song. He's like, this one was actually written by David. And remember who David was. If you're a a tribal person in the ancient Near Eastern world and you identified in one of the tribes of Israel, this was your most famous tribal king, your tribal chief, you might say. This was the the person who was historically the most famous. But he was actually a great underdog story, right? I mean, I've gone this long without mentioning the Rams winning the Super Bowl, which has been… Really amazing. This is the first time I've sat in front of you with a microphone since that happened. But you remember one of the greatest underdog stories of Kurt Warner who was stocking shelves at a grocery store. He wasn't in the NFL and literally went from that to the very first year he was in the NFL. He won the NFL MVP in the Super Bowl. Well, that's kind of the story, the mythology of David. He was a a shepherd boy, singer, songwriter. He probably had some sort of like hipster liar, and he was hanging out with sheep and smelled bad and had no future and no hope. But he rose to become the biggest hero culturally of the Israelite people. And yet, and this is, I think, what draws us to these stories over millennia, he was also human and flawed and made mistakes and hurt people. And as most of you know, the most famous sin of David was that he lusted for a wife that was not his own. He wanted something he could not have in Bathsheba. He saw her bathing on a roof. He wanted her. He took her, and he ultimately even used nationalism and militarism and violence to have her husband murdered so he could take Bathsheba as a pretty much the worst stuff you can do as a human being. And I think that's one of the reasons we're drawn to these texts and we still talk about them all these years later because we're not all that different in some ways. Maybe we're not murderous people who send people into war so we can have their wife. But I bet there's something in your life, I know there are in mine, that I wish I could take back. Um, I hope there's some human connection on this point. I hope there's something in you that you go, yeah, I know what it's like to do something and go, that's not who I am and I really hurt myself and I really hurt other people. And sometimes it's more extreme than that. Um, sometimes it's waking up from a sweated dream at night of something horrible that we've done. One of the things that draws us back to this tradition and this cycle and this season is that part of the message of true Christianity that I believe is so viral and so growing is that there is hope for David, which means there is hope for all of us, because we can repent and we can change in season. In turn, we can become new again. This is what David wrote in Psalm 51, this ancient Near Eastern, Middle Eastern singer-songwriter. He says, "'Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your unfailing love. According to Your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against You and You only have I sinned and done what is evil in Your sight. So, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Um, I just want to make a little nerdy side note. This is the NIV I'm reading out of, but. It actually says, surely I was conceived in sin in the Hebrew. And scholars disagree, but it it seems like David's actually maybe referencing that his own conception was probably an illegitimate marriage in the ancient Near Eastern world. This actually probably isn't a statement about original sin, as Christians would like to look back through our lenses and read. He's probably actually saying, my own existence came from an act of infidelity. And so I can see that maybe redemption can come from brokenness and pain, as he reads on. He says, Come, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit, or your holy breath, or your holy wind from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise." I I love this on an artful level. I don't know how old David was when he wrote this. He wrote lots of songs. That's the way he interacted with the world. That was his art. He wrote poetry and put it into song and sang it. And and I think the reason this psalm is so famous is because I think all of us can somewhat connect to the emotion of this art, of saying, I'm not denying that I blew it big time, and I'm throwing myself at the mercy of God, saying, if I could just be clean and made new, and washed clean. I'll then go teach your righteousness to sinners. I'll, I'll take this thing that was so dark and turn it into something good, redemption and resurrection." Well, so what? Here's what the conversation that I'm hoping to start with us. First of all, I want to invite us to, to think outside of the box that community is just when we show up on Sunday at five o'clock. Hopefully you've caught that message if you've come to the Commons for a long time. Church is people, and church is people living together. And one of the things I love about a season like Lent or Advent is it's when we get to intentionally decide as a community that we're gonna do something practice-wise together. And so what we're gonna do is people of faith, and it's optional, nothing is compelled or forced. It's something that we hope to be inspired into is to say we're going to start this Wednesday, which marks 46 days before Easter, which is always changing because of the Jewish lunar calendar, and we're going to start with ash Wednesday with a day of repentance. And most of you probably know this, but the ash of the Bible is very symbolic. Job would put on sackcloth and ashes. Tamar would put on ashes. Jesus even said Tyre and Sidon would have repented with sackcloth and ashes. We know that in the ancient world when people felt contrite of heart, when they admitted that they were broken like David the king, they would put ashes on because they remembered that from ashes we have come and to ashes we will return. I mean, that's a really earthy thing. It's the very first part of the poetry of Genesis is that when the very first brokenness entered into this beautiful story, that's really not a story about two people in history, it's a story about me and you and about how we were naked and unashamed and how all of us do things that hurt us. The very first poem that comes out of God's mouth is that from dust you have come and dust you return. Many churches will say that phrase, sometimes in Latin, sometimes in English. I don't know what they'll do at the Episcopal Church on Wednesday. But I think it's even scientific. I think it's beautiful because the more we know about the cosmos now, we now know the way galaxies form. We watch it happen in real time. Stars explode. And, and out of that incredible heat come the heavier elements, the irons of the world. And those things slowly coalesce with gravity and molten balls that rotate around stars. And, and all of that stuff says that every single part of our essence and being and fire came from an exploded star. The iron that's pumping in our blood right now could only have formed in the powerful explosion of a star, which is the creative mind of our God. From dust we have come, stardust specifically, and to dust we will return It gives us a humility and an earthiness that gives us the ability to repent together, and then we can do something beautiful. That's called fasting. So I want to invite you this Lenten season as Wednesday approaches. There's a million different ways that you can join in the Lenten thing. It's kind of like New Year's resolutions. It's something else, but you can give something up for Lent. That's traditionally what a lot of Christians do. Catholics give up meat every Friday of Lent. Orthodox people give up um, food for certain hours a day the whole time of Lent. The beautiful thing about the diversity of the church in this relational connection to God is we can talk about together and dream up what do we want to do to prepare our hearts for resurrection this season. I know in my own life, in our own family, we're going through a little bit of a cycle of like just trying to re-get things in control and get a plan and get life together. And that's just a cycle of repentance and rebirth. And sometimes I think, especially if you're someone who's experienced alcoholism or substance abuse or physical abuse, sometimes one of the things that's so hard is you've tried before and it just doesn't work. I bet that's another human thing that you can connect with I bet most of you have in something in your life been like, oh, I've tried this like ten times before and it doesn't work. That's why seasons are so great, because we're back here again, we can restart, we can repent, we can remember the earthiness and God's love, and we can commit ourselves to prepare ourselves in a fast together for what resurrection can look like in all of our lives. So maybe it's giving up meat. I think a great modern interpretation, because one of the things I love about faith, one of the things I love about Scripture is it's living, it's active, it keeps changing. And one of the things that we also understand about our, chaming, our, cl- our climate changing and our active role in that as humans is that if we gave up just red meat for Lent and enter that into your life, there is no single action you could take more powerful to affect climate change than giving up red meat. If all of us could move away as a society from the mass production of red meat and the methane that that industry produces, that's the most powerful thing we could do individually to fight against climate change. There's many things we can do to fight against it, but that may be a starting point. For many lengths, I've given up meat. Maybe it's sugar, maybe it's a health choice. Maybe you wanna stop putting so much sugar in your body. Maybe it's it's taking away phone time or screen time. Maybe it's cutting down social media or news. The cool thing is, the beautiful thing is, Maybe we can ask someone we love the most near to us, hey, what do you think would be a great idea for me? And we can have some community around that and decide what it might be. Another thing you can do for Lent is you can add things into your life. It's not always about taking things away. You can decide that, you know what, <laughs> I can't go without sugar right now or whatever it is, and maybe I just need to, just need to brush my teeth every night. <laughs> maybe I just need to work out every day. I just need to read the newspaper and be informed. I don't know what the answer is to those things. Maybe I need to add a spiritual practice uh, of prayer, uh, imaginative prayer, or, or reading a, a book that will connect you to the divine. Adding things can also be a beautiful thing. Here's, here's the challenge, I want to invite all of you to take a stretch if you've never partaken in the liturgical season of Lent. I want to invite you to, if you can, make it to the Episcopal Church Wednesday night. I think it's a beautiful time uh, to meet together and and receive the ashes, which is a symbol of that dust, of dust, and to to be a marker of our community that we're going to go through the season, we're going to repent, and we're going to find life and redemption in the perfect and always unfailable, unconditional love of God, that if David could even find that cleanliness, and be transformed, all of us can also find that redemption, that forgiveness, that grace, and then transform our actions. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to do the sacrament of communion. If you've never been here before, we have a couple of places here that is uh, modified to be COVID-safe with these little cups. If you just give the person in front of you space as they come up and grab one, as they come up here and sing another song, we feel everyone is welcome at the giant table of Jesus. Um, It's an optional time. You shouldn't feel compelled at all, but if you'd like to, uh, we've got wine and grape juice and uh, gluten-free and gluten-full crackers over there for, uh, for this sacrament. It's another practice. That can connect us. It's the feast of taking into us the physical elements of God's grace. It's the act of repentance writ small as to what we will writ large, write large in these 46 days. There's 40 days, and there's six Sundays. And just so you know, Sundays is a freebie. The Christians know that Sundays is resurrection day. It's a feast day. So, you don't fast on Sunday. You fast all the other days. So, whatever you do, don't blow it on that. That's a big deal. I'm going to pray for the communion time. We'll share that together and uh, we'll enjoy this music. Lord, thank You for Your grace. I'm thankful for ancient songs. I'm thankful that Rahab and Tamar and David and Abraham and the woman at the well, Mary Magdalene, Saul and Paul, I'm thankful for their humanness, their earthiness. From dust they came, dust they returned, but I'm thankful that in the process, your breath and your spirit was in them, and I'm thankful that their voices echo through their art and their writings and their stories, that, Lord, those that are humble in heart before you and repentant can receive grace, not earned, but drawn from the very essence of your being of love. As David appeals to in the very beginning of his song, Lord, it's Your unfailing love that he's calling out toward. And Lord, at this sacrament today, Lord, we're calling to that same unfailing love. Lord, all of us individually sin, and we let sometimes our greed or our indifference hurt us and hurt other people. And Lord, we come to Your unfailing love, and we ask You, please forgive us. And collectively as a people, as a nation, Lord, we are filled with cancerous racism, and nationalism, and militarism, and violence, and greed. And we come to the communion table today and we say, God, forgive us. Give us a clean heart. Make us new so that we can go speak to transgressors and be truth-tellers that this world can be filled with your love. We receive your love today. We thank you for grace. In Jesus' name, amen.